Have you ever had the feeling you were being watched? My name is August Cruz. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Stalker. It's a fiction about a man who becomes obsessed with a woman he's never actually met. Like most fictions, however, the story has its roots in real stalking cases. Over 25 million people have experienced stalking in their lifetime. Today, we're going to explore one of those cases. Hey, welcome to episode 11 of My Favorite Prey. I'm August Cruz, and thank you for joining me again. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll continue to listen to future episodes. As I mentioned in my last uh, podcast, this is the anniversary of My Favorite Prey, and hopefully we'll have many more together. Although, today's episode is, and I know I've said this before, one of the most fucked up stalking cases that I've come across. I'm not kidding. Even if you don't normally curse, which probably means that you're kind of a weirdo, you'll probably find yourself doing so as you listen to this one. But I hope that won't deter you from listening again. As such, though, I'm including a disclaimer. This particular episode contains some really, really disturbing content, so discretion is advised. Before we go any further, however, if you want to reach out with comments, questions, requests for future cases, complaints, or preferably compliments, please email me at mfpray22 at gmail.com. mfpray22 at gmail.com. Okay, you've been warned. So let's get to it. If you ask most people they'll admit that they may have had a crush on a teacher when they were younger. I'm definitely guilty of that. You spend most of the day with them, five days a week. And while you may not like the homework assignments or the test or, God forbid, the group work, there are times when there's a certain teacher that you just click with. Maybe you find their jokes funny. Maybe you understand that they really seem to care about the students. Maybe... There was just something about that teacher that made you look at them differently. That's usually where the whole crush thing starts. You might smile at them a little more, or hang around the classroom a little more, or ask for help with an assignment when you don't really need it, you just want their attention. In most cases, mine included, this lasts throughout the school year and... Once you moved on or graduated, it just becomes a funny memory of what might have been one of your first crushes, and life moves on. They're just another picture in the yearbook. For teacher Mary Stauffer and former student Ming Shen Chu, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Ming Shen Chu, say that three times fast was born on October 15, 1950, in Taiwan. When he was eight years old, he moved to Minnesota with his mother and two siblings. His father, who died three years later, was a professor at the University of Minnesota at the time. Xu was described as violent towards his younger siblings, often beating them just because he felt like it. In his teen years, Xu was reportedly engaged in criminal activities such as starting fires in apartments of three strangers and throwing rocks at cars, like you do. For his role in the arsons, he was ordered to participate in psychotherapy at the age of 14, 
but not a lot came out of that. According to his own mother's testimony, Shu lied about pretty much everything, but still insisted that he was right and never took any responsibility for what he did, no matter how wrong it was. It got to the point where even his own mother was afraid of him. She would later say that he had no feelings, like a dog. I'm guessing she meant the rabbit kind, obviously. From 1965 to 1966, Shu attended Alexander Ramsey High School in Roseville, Minnesota. That's where he met his ninth grade math teacher, Mary Stauffer. Eventually, Thing, uh, I'm sorry, I mean Ming, started to develop a crush on her. Now, this wasn't just your ordinary school crush where you might blush or giggle whenever the teacher would speak to you. Ming took it to another level almost right away. He would later admit that he began sexually fantasizing about Stauffer, and not only that, but he would also write stories about his fantasies, which would include scenarios of consensual sex, rape, and gang rape. Not exactly the bringing the apple for the teacher type of thing. In later years, he realized that he didn't find complete satisfaction from his fantasies. Sue decided to kidnap Stauffer. He needed to possess her. Meanwhile, Mary was completely unaware of Ming's feelings. Years after Ming graduated, Mary and her family would spend most of the 1970s taking missionary trips to the Philippines, which would obviously require them to live there for years at a time. Ming's obsession, however, only grew. In 1975, Shu located what he mistakenly thought to be Stauffer's residence in Duluth, Minnesota. Ten years after he met her, Ming devised a plan. He decided he was going to break into the house with a gun. And he did. However, what he didn't know was that Mary didn't live there. Instead, it was her in-law's house. Ming broke into the house and heartlessly forced the older couple to the ground. Scared and having no idea who this person was or what he wanted at first, they had no choice but to do as he said and as he pointed his gun at them. He tied them both up. When he found out that Mary didn't live there, he was beside himself with confusion and anger. A decade of planning and fantasies that he had built up in his mind came crashing down. Looking down at the helpless old couple, he realized that he had jeopardized his chance at getting the one thing he had lusted for all this time. In a moment of clarity, well, because I hate to use the word mercy when it comes to this scumbag, instead of killing them, he threatened that if they went to the police or told anyone about what had happened, he would come back and kill them both. Because of this threat, the home invasion wasn't reported until five years later. This poor couple had to deal with that trauma all that time. 
As Shu continued his search for Stauffer during the intervening period, Stauffer lived with family in the Philippines, where she and her husband, Irv, worked as Christian missionaries. They returned to Minnesota in 1979. Shu learned that Stauffer lived at the Bethel University campus and began to stalk her. On May 16, 1980, Mary took her daughter Beth to get their hair done at a local salon. They were getting themselves ready to go on another missionary trip to the Philippines. Shu, however, had other plans in mind. He had tracked down Mary and followed her and her daughter to the beauty salon in Roseville. When Stauffer left the salon, Shu kidnapped both Mary and her daughter at gunpoint. Menacing Stauffer with his gun, he told her he needed a ride, and that unless she did what he said, he would kill both her and her daughter. Mary had no idea who Ming was, but she did as she was told, and the three of them got in Mary's car. Because of her devout faith, she tried to tell him that God loves everyone, and that he could help him as well, no matter what he was going through. Ming's only response to this was, Shut up and drive. He instructed her to drive north. While they were driving, Ming would tell Mary to make a right here, a left there, all while brandishing the gun. Mary's knuckles whitened as she gripped the wheel, wondering where this would all lead. At one point, a police officer pulled up behind them at an intersection, and Shu threatened that if the car turned the same direction as they did, he would shoot Beth. This little innocent girl. The vehicles ended up heading in opposite directions. They drove to a remote wooded area in Anoka County where Shu bound Mary and Beth together, covered their mouths with medical tape before forcing them to basically hunker down in the trunk of the car. During the trip to his house, Shu stopped the car twice because Mary and Beth were making noises. These noises that they were making were Mary and Beth praying. When he stopped for the second time, the six-year-old boy, Jason Wilkman, approached the car to see what was happening. He was just riding his bike, saw somebody who maybe needed help. Shu grabbed the boy and forced him into the trunk as well. After he slammed it closed, he got back in the car and started driving. In the darkness of the trunk, the fear that enveloped all three victims could be felt without a word being spoken. At one point, Mary tried communicating with Jason, but he was too afraid to say anything other than his name and age. He kept crying, and through his tears and feelings of fear and desperation, he told Mary that he needed to get home because he was visiting his grandmother that weekend. Mary in a mothering and comforting tone, tried to soothe the frightened child, told him 
Well, she was supposed to visit hers as well. And that everything would be okay. They reached the Carlos Avery Wildlife Management Area, where Shu took Jason out of the trunk and into the woods. We felt Ming grab Jason and take him out, Beth said. There was a crowbar next to me. I didn't know if it was a crowbar, just a long metal stick, and he went off for a long, long time. When he got back, Shu didn't open the trunk. Instead, he just started the car and took off. Jason wasn't with them anymore. What would later be discovered is that Ming took the six-year-old Jason out of the trunk, slammed it shut so his other captives wouldn't get out, led the boy a few feet away into the woods, and there, with no witnesses other than the trees that surrounded them, Ming beat Jason to death with the metal bar. His only crime was his concern that somebody needed help. After abandoning Mary's car and tying them up in his black windowless van, Shu eventually took them to the electronic store he owned, Sound Equipment Services along University Avenue. This entrepreneur let them use the bathroom and gave them juice before blindfolding them and putting them back in his van and driving to his apartments in nearby Roseville, a home a mere six miles from Mary's apartment. He placed them shackled and chained together in a black, dark bedroom closet, measuring four feet by 21 inches wide. There were some blankets, plastic bags on a shelf, a light bulb with a pull chain, a rug, and two small throw pillows on the floor. He also had removed the doorknob from the inside just so that they wouldn't be able to mess with it. And once he put them in there, he closed and locked the door. After all these years of fantasizing, thinking about Mary, he finally had her where he wanted. In the meantime, Mary's husband Irv and her son Steve were home waiting. Irv even went so far as to call the salon, and the hairstylist confirmed mother and daughter had left around 4.30. He told fellow missionary colleagues who lived in the apartment about their disappearance, and they spent the night calling local hospitals to see if they had been admitted. He also called police later that night. The police, however, were more concerned about Jason Wilkman's disappearance. Understandably so, of course. Jason's friend, who reported the abduction, wasn't able to see in the trunk, and so authorities had no clue about the first kidnapping. It wasn't until the following morning, as investigators searched the park area where Jason was taken, that the two cases began to merge into one. The license plate from the Stolfer's car was found, torn off by the heavy brush during Shu's quick getaway. Finally, police had a connection between the disappearances. As many as 300 officers and volunteers began searching.
On the second day of the abduction, Shu brought Mary out of the closet, spread out her blanket on the living room floor, blindfolded her, and tied her to a piece of furniture. What came next was a three-hour videotaped interview where he slowly revealed who he was. Do you remember a student who developed a formula for an algebra problem, he asked? That's when Mary remembered Ming. She remembered they had never given him a problem in her class, never had an issue with him at all. During the question and answer session, Shu said that the B Mary gave him as a freshman was a blemish on his otherwise spotless record, and because of that, he was unable to receive an academic scholarship. Since his father had died, Shu said he couldn't afford to attend college without a scholarship and instead was drafted into the Vietnam War and ended up as a POW. He blamed all his failures in life on Mary. Uh, <coughs> all that was bullshit. In reality, a concept Shu was clearly unfamiliar with, he placed first in his high school class and could have potentially earned a scholarship to virtually any college. He was voted most likely to succeed by his peers, reportedly attended the University of Minnesota, never served in the U.S. military, and instead started a business in the Twin Cities. He was using this as not only an excuse for his actions, but also as part of his sadistic, sick fantasies that he intended to play out. He revealed to Mary his plan to avenge the wrongs his obsessed mind believed she had caused him. He began to remove her pants and underwear, pulled her shirt over her head, and said, I don't want your scars to be physical. I want them to be emotional. I want you to feel dirty, debased, and degraded. At which point, he videotaped at least six hours of rape sessions until he was forced to return the video camera he had on loan. The rapes, however, continued daily thereafter. Naturally, Mary worried Shu would turn his attention to her daughter Beth. At one point, though, Shu would say, Whatever else I am, I am not a tire molester. How nice. And while he didn't rape Beth or make her watch the rapes, he did threaten to do so. This piece of shit wasn't averse to playing mind games, however. Since Mary wasn't showing him the affection that she had in his twisted fantasies, he upped the ante, insisting Mary be more loving toward him. Oddly, Mary objected. Imagine that. She told him that she couldn't do that because she loved her husband and took a vow to be devoted to him until death. In response, Ming the Merciless, a reference you younger folks probably won't get, got a clear, got a clear plastic bag and said, Have you ever watched someone die by suffocation? You're going to watch your daughter die by suffocation. 
He put this plastic bag over Beth's whole body as she sat in the closet. He tucked it underneath her and said, It'll take four to five minutes. She'll gradually breathe up all the oxygen in the bag, and then she'll die. Beth asked, Mom, what does he want you to do? Mary said, He wants me to send. This little girl's sweet, unselfish reply was, Oh, Mom, don't sin. But please, can I come out from under this bag because it's so hot in here? Mary could see the sweat coming down her little girl's face, her eyes pleading with her mother, her savior. Not wanting to watch her, Shu also told her he would kill her husband and son as well if she didn't comply. Mary gave her this reassuring glance and then turned to the sick fuck, gave him a peck on the cheek. That's not enough, he said. Trying to contain her disgust, Mary gave him a peck on the lips, which seemed to satisfy him for the moment, and he took the bag off Beth. At one point, still wearing the same clothes as the day they were kidnapped, Shu brought Mary to a shopping mall in Madison, Wisconsin. So they could change their outfits and he could take them out under the pretense of being a family. You know, normal stuff. He kept Beth close to him to prevent Mary from telling anyone about the abduction. Still, Mary tried to find ways to alert the authorities. She used a traveler's check from her purse while shopping, hoping the bank would be notified of the transaction. Even though Irv had alerted the FBI to the existence of the check, the FBI apparently was not notified when the check cleared. Left alone in the Winnebago, Beth tried yelling to a group of teenage boys outside the window, but they basically laughed at her and told her to stop making up stories and went on their way. Holding true to her faith, during the trip, Mary took a Gideon Bible from a motel room and read to Beth on a daily basis. They kept up prayer vigils, even praying for their captor. On June 15, 1980, at 10.14 p.m., Ming allowed Beth to call her father Irv for Father's Day. On July 7, 1980, Ming left Mary and Beth chained together in the closet and went to work. 
because, you know, in between the rape, kidnapping, and torture, he still had a business to run. Mary knew she had to take matters into her own hands if she and her daughter would have any hope of escaping and staying alive. Using only her fingernails, she managed to remove the hinge pin from the closet door and saw for the first time a way out. Beth, however, was too traumatized and afraid to move. She told her mother that if they tried to escape and failed, that when Ming got home, he would be very angry and who knew what he would do. Mary convinced her daughter that they had to try, otherwise they wouldn't ever be able to see their family again. Still chained together, Mary and Beth ran to the kitchen, found a phone, and dialed 911. It was their one chance. They finally got out of their prison, all through Mary's attempts to try and just save herself and her daughter. Local police and FBI agents arrived within minutes. Mary and Beth were found huddled together, hiding behind a car. After 53 harrowing days, they were finally rescued and reunited with their family. Ming was arrested the very same day as he returned home from work. He was charged with second-degree murder in the case of Jason Wilkman and kidnapping in the case of Mary and Beth Stauffer. Six months later, Ming finally led the police to Jason's remains, bringing closure to his grief-stricken parents, David and Sandra. Somehow, the Wilkmans found it in their hearts to graciously forgive him and later moved out of state in search of a fresh start. Xu underwent two trials. The first trial took place in 1980 and concerned the abduction of Mary and Elizabeth Stauffer and the rape of Mary. Because Xu had taken them over state lines, the crime became a federal case under the Federal Kidnapping Act. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Because the federal government still had parole at the time, he technically became eligible for parole after 10 years and eligible for mandatory release after 30 years. Under the old law, federal lifers had to be released after 30 years unless they were proven to be a danger to society. However, the judge recommended that Xu serve the full 30 years. Xu became eligible for mandatory release on July 6, 2010, but was denied. On September 28, 2010, the Anoka County District Judge Jenny Walker Jasper ruled that Xu could be detained indefinitely as a dangerous sexual predator, even if he is granted parole. He was also found to have a sexual, psychopathic personality. Shu, who had never sought sex offender treatment in prison, apologized. Let me just repeat that. He fucking apologized. Oh, I'm sorry for tying you and your daughter up and keeping you in a closet and raping you. And he begged for Mary's forgiveness during the hearing, saying she had every right to hate him. Beth hoped that Shu's apology was genuine, but thought it was too dangerous to ever be freed. Duh. Shu appealed the ruling declaring him a dangerous sexual predator. 
but this was denied. During the second trial, this is after he pleaded for mercy and apologized, by the way, he pulled out a knife that he had smuggled into the courtroom and attacked Mary. The wound required 62 stitches to close and left a scar. At the same time, Shu promised to kill her and her daughter when he would be released from prison. So much for that apology. When the trial ended, Shu was sentenced to 40 years for the murder charge to be served concurrently with his previous 30-year sentence. His parole has been denied several times, and it has been determined that he will likely serve the rest of his life in prison. It's one thing to have a little crush on someone, be it your neighbor, close friend, or a teacher. But Ming didn't really have a crush. He had an obsession. An obsession that took over his life, and unfortunately, the lives of others. One innocent little boy, and a mother and daughter who only wanted to continue their lives, bringing peace, love, and faith to others. All three paid the price for Ming's demented delusions. And while Mary and Beth have since moved on with their lives and they continue to bring peace, love, faith, and hope to others, of course their experience changed them. It fortified their faith, brought them closer together, but it also showed them the darker side of humanity. But to their credit, it didn't destroy them. In the end, Ming not only lost his freedom, he completely lost the control he had over Mary, something he had craved for years. And that is probably a worse prison for him. If you or anyone you know has experienced a stalker or think you may have, please don't hesitate to contact Safe Horizon at 800-621-HOPE. That's 800-621-4673. They're available 24 hours a day, and even if they aren't in your city, they can help you get in touch with the local support center. Take care of yourselves. Watch your surroundings. I hope you join me again.